It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen? Seals? The mark? How did the early church understand it all, anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that in the end, he wins. Jesus wins. Two years ago, it was a Friday in January. I was standing on the main stage in Sanctus Ajax, was practicing a sermon that I was going to be preaching the upcoming Sunday on the meaning of marriage. I finished up, checked my messages, read a text from my oldest daughter that said she was going to walk home from high school, but first was stopping at Tim Hortons and then was going to go to a friend's. So I went to the school only to pick up my other two kids. We arrived home to find the double doors at our front entrance of our home were busted open, completely off the hinges. Immediately, I phoned 911 and I was angry. Someone had broken into my home, so I stomped into the house to look around. The 911 agent calmly reminds me my kids are here with me and that going inside without the police was probably not the safest thing, so I backed outside. We went and waited in the van for the police to arrive. They came, searched the house, dusted the place for fingerprints. And looking back, wow, I'm so thankful that my oldest daughter had not walked home and she wasn't there alone. My in-laws live with us, and fortunately, they were on vacation. But unfortunately, it was their jewelry, their personal sentimental possessions, including heirlooms that they had wanted to pass down to their kids. They were all stolen. You know, after the robbery, for some time, our entire household, we felt this mix of emotions, frustration, irritation, fear, sadness, and violation. That someone had got, come in and gotten through our personal belongings. You know, I think about how some people think that following Jesus and serving in ministry like I do should keep you from experiencing suffering. Well, this story tells us that's untrue. It also really helped me in my understanding of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart also is. Store your treasures in heaven. Well, how does one do that? 
I don't know how or where you grew up, but what I heard about heaven and how the world was going to end was that the followers of Christ would be sucked up into the air, raptured before great loss and suffering gets really bad. And then Jesus would come in soaring, kind of like Luke Skywalker with like the pew and he'd destroy the earth. But no, we're, no worries because by then my spirit would have been removed to some other place, a spirit realm called heaven where I'd spend eternity. Now it sounds like an epic ending, but that's not biblical. We can't ignore all that's said in scripture about how our suffering shows the glory of God in our lives. Now soon I'm gonna mention how God redeemed the robbery our house experienced, but first I'll remind you, we are living in tribulation. That means we're not safe from suffering and persecution because God's enemies are working hard against all the followers of Christ. Now, I'm so thankful for this series on Revelation. I've had amazing conversations in my connect group about the sermons as we've been studying what the Apostle John wrote about Jesus coming again, the messages to the churches, Jesus on the throne in heaven, the opening of the seals, the sounding of the trumpets, which are a call for repentance, Christ overcoming the devil and all of his allies, and then last week, the final judgment, Christ triumphant. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, the book of Revelation contains both history and prophecy. It'd be a mistake to say that every single statement should be taken literally, or the opposite, that every statement should be taken figuratively. Because it's a confusing book, many churches have avoided it. And people assume it's not possible to know what our future holds or what heaven will actually be like. And yet, it is possible. Heaven is beautiful. And Revelation chapters 21 and 22, it gives us a clear description and it makes it possible for us to imagine. Do you anticipate heaven's unending beauty and the adventure that awaits you? If you did, would that change the way that you face the days ahead? Let's find out, shall we? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. Okay, I can easily think of reasons why the earth needs to be renewed. All the damage caused from earthquakes, volcanoes, landslides, avalanches, the impact of climate change, all the effects from the lack of attention to limit global warming and to care for our environment. Yes, the earth could use a makeover. But why a new heaven? I mean, what's wrong with the old one? God did create it after all, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God did not always dwell only in heaven. He existed before he created it. God is spiritual, but he did spend time on physical earth. It says that he walked in the garden with the first people of his creation. And yet heaven as it is, is above. 
and it is separate from the earth. When we tell our children that grandma is in heaven now, we're referring to the present heaven. When she died, her spirit departs from her body. The body goes to the grave and the spirit then becomes present with the Lord. This is acknowledged in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Now God is in heaven and that is where Christ is seated on the throne. Remember, we studied that in Revelation chapter 4. Easter is just around the corner. And that's when we talk the most about Jesus' death and his resurrection. But here's a sneak peek. The Bible is clear that Jesus physically rose from the dead. The risen Jesus, he appeared not only to his disciples, but to hundreds of people. And there are at least 10 different appearances listed in scripture. His body could be seen and touched. Jesus Christ's same physical body was resurrected. It retained the scars from his crucifixion. The phrase from 1 Corinthians 15, 13 that says, resurrection of the dead, that means that that which is dead is made alive. When Jesus ascended, his new physical body went to heaven. This is the guarantee to us that when Christ comes again and the bodily resurrection happens to all of Christ's followers, it's referring to our physical bodies. We won't spend eternity in spirit, which is what I once thought. Some religions will say to you that you may think you are a physical being, but you really aren't. Well, that's incorrect. God created both physical and spiritual reality. They aren't separate from each other. The Bible teaches the resurrection is a transformation of our same bodies that we had here on earth. Your physical body is part of your identity. For example, you won't lose your gender after the resurrection. Your spirit remains too, and you won't lose your culture. The exciting part is that Christ will make our bodies better than they are now. Bodies that had been burned or damaged, they're going to receive better qualities and capacities. 1 Corinthians 15, the end of verse 51 and 52 says this, We will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. Now all that's really helpful because it helps us see that heaven is a physical place, a physical location. But if you're still wondering why a new heaven is necessary, well, for starters, it's necessary because God said so. Revelation tells us that the present heaven is temporary and there is a future heaven. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, God promised that he would create new heavens and a new earth that would endure forever. That's Isaiah 66, verse 22. So God decided this. God promised it. He is a faithful and truthful God. It will happen. Now, secondly, a new heaven is necessary because he's cleaning up the physical and the spiritual reality that has been damaged. God does not give up on. He's not going to abandon the earth that he created. Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This earth will be made new. 
heaven will be too. And the separate realms of heaven and earth, they get united. This is how it was revealed to the apostle John, verses two and three of chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. The words new Jerusalem, they would have meant something really significant to the Jewish believers of the first century because they were still grappling with the loss of their home city. Long before King David had originally conquered Jerusalem and it had been the capital of the Jewish kingdom until it was leveled by Rome in AD 70. And then after that, the first century Jerusalem was just a pile of rubble. This new Jerusalem that's coming out of heaven down to a new earth, it's a city. Does it surprise you that it's a city and not a garden like Eden was? Now it has a garden, we're gonna to get to that, but it's a city first. Cities are busy. They're not typically where I'd go to rest. It's a place to work. It's where I'd go for excitement, variety, and new experiences. Throughout the Bible and much of human history, the city is also known for arrogance and violence. It's a place where you hold on to your child's hand and your purse just a little bit tighter. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor John talked about the embodiment of rebellion and immorality as a city. It's called Babylon. And that mighty city falls, faces judgment, and it becomes no more. So contrast that image with this image of a new holy city. The sea, which represented the forces of chaos that were against God, are completely gone. The new city is a sanctified one, one that city builders have longed to build. This future city, it comes down and it's not our doing. Daryl Johnson wrote this, the city coming with Jesus Christ is God's doing, God's work, God's new work, God's new creation. We humans did not form the first creation and we do not form the new creation. The language used to describe the relationship between God, the creator and his city, it provides this intimate imagery. The city is prepared as a bride. Now a bride, she, she looks her best on her wedding day for her husband. And just like the church was referred to as Christ's bride in 2 Corinthians 11:2, so now the city similarly represents those of God's people who were already with God in heaven. They're adorned in bridal wear. They're ready for the covenant that joins God and his people now forever. So the reason God comes down is to live with his people. God's no longer gonna be separated, but he's gonna be present and in a different way than what we get to experience this side of heaven. Look at verse four, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This fulfills what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25 verse eight. He will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. Oh, how I look forward to this. Is there a massive sorrow that's been in your heart that results from some sin or some disaster, some disappointment? Please look again at these verses and see God is going to dwell with you. God is greater than all of your pain. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I just ask, would you even try to imagine something that's better than what this passage offers you? A new heaven and a new earth, a holy city, the presence of God, comfort for all your sorrow and protection from any future pain. What more could you want? Revelation 21 verses five to seven say this, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Now, John shows us that he wrote this book because God told him to write this book. Alpha, as the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega is the last. So if God is declaring he already is the end, then he knows what's going to happen. So he can say what will be done. We don't need to be confused about future events. Look now at verse 8. It lists various character traits and behaviors that are all inconsistent with the kingdom of God. And none of these will be in the new heaven or on the new earth. Only God's children will inherit the treasures of this incredible home. And oh, what treasures there are. Note that God does not say from the throne, I will make all things new. God says, I am making all things new. It's already in the works. When my house was broken into, God redeemed the damaged front doors because we got to select brand new, beautiful ones that were put in the place of the old ones using that existing space. Now, this, of course, is a tiny scale of what this comparison is in the text. But God is taking a hold of all things, creation, humans, and cities, and he's making them new. One of the other things that I learned a little about during the robbery was the value of gems. Our insurance company requested a sketch and an estimated guess of the worth of each of the pieces of my mother-in-law's jewelry that had been stolen. Well, I'm no appraiser, so I looked on Google and I wrote down some conservative numbers. And it surprised me how quickly the value grew simply just be because there was a number of pieces, all of which actually had fairly small stones. How easy would it have been for you to calculate the value of those stones or maybe even larger stones? Probably couldn't for the ones that are as large as the ones in our text. Look at how casually what is treasured by sinful mankind here and now is used in the new heaven and the new earth. 
Think of the largest pearls in the world. And they're made into 12 different gates. And because there are no enemies, no one to fear, the gates are left open. Even though the city is made of pure gold and jasper is used to build the wall. The foundation has 12 precious stones of every color and hue. What is rare and precious now will be abundant then. The streets that the servants of God get to walk on are made of gold. This is the type of city that God makes. Why then do you ever doubt that God can provide for you? What would your life be like if you believed your father was so wealthy, he was going to build a city of pure gold? Now, all of this shows us that the real treasure of the new heaven and the new earth is God himself. Revelation 21:11 says, It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The precious metal, it corresponds to the sanctity of the place. In Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul spoke of the church being a holy temple that is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. These verses, they confirm that that is who these materials represent. And the city was as broad as it was high as it was wide. The measurements are 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. Okay, so 12,000 stadia is estimated to be around 14, 1,500 miles, which isn't really the point because how can you even imagine a wall that high? We're not supposed to make a blueprint. But like many of the times that numbers are used in Revelation, just simply take notice that it's a multiple of 12. That points to completion and wholeness. And take note, this is a cube-shaped city. A cube-shaped city would immediately remind the Jewish reader of the inner sanctuary of the temple, the place of divine presence. But John says, I saw no temple. Now that's unheard of for a lifelong Jew who would have expected God to dwell in a temple. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, when Solomon's temple was inaugurated, the glory of God descends and the priests are forced to evacuate. And in the future, this is going to be different. Look at verses 22 and 23. John writes, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The new city is the Holy of Holies, and we don't have to leave. We will remain in God's presence. Saints no longer stand outside or just before God, but it says all peoples will walk in the light of the glory of God. All peoples. No one ethnic group can bear or manifest the full image of God. It takes us all. And in the new city, we are all there as God's multi-ethnic race. Revelation chapter 22 continues describing this new Jerusalem. Verses 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree, a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Now this matches the river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden in Genesis 2.10. You and I can't live without water. It's a basic need for survival. The street in the city is wide. And can you, can you imagine a river that's running through its center? In Ezekiel's prophecy about heaven from Ezekiel 47, it says that there were trees whose leaves do not wither and whose fruit does not fail. So just as we cannot live without water, we cannot live without food. In the new heaven, the fruit is abundant, accessible, constant, and of stunning variety. It will be a new and better Garden of Eden. As the redeemed enjoy the garden, old hurts will be healed. Nationalism, racism, anarchy, bitterness, and warfare, all will be healed. The nations will be healed by the leaves of the tree of life. This is desperately needed. Notice this, the river that feeds the tree flows from the throne of God and from the lamb. Ultimately, it is the lamb who gives us life. It comes from his death and his resurrection. We will live forever because of his sacrifice. Jesus, the savior of the world, he gives us this free gift. My absolute favorite scene from the show, The Chosen, is this one in which the Samaritan woman meets up with Jesus at the well. It's based on John chapter four. And I, I can't watch this scene without weeping. The interaction between them is so well scripted and acted. And Jesus starts by asking her for a drink. And then he also says, if you knew me, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The woman, she tells Jesus how she's been rejected by others, but he's able to tell her words of knowledge about her life. He reveals to her that he's the Messiah and she believes. And with great excitement, she drops her water jugs because she just can't wait to go and tell everyone that the Messiah has come. And the hope from that promise was enough for her. And here in Revelation, again, the promise of living water, freely given to anyone who's thirsty. Do you wanna drink from that river? Do you wanna eat of that tree? Do you want the healing of its leaves? Because you can't earn it. There's nothing you could ever do to earn access to this fruit. We've already blown it. And there's no undoing what we've done that disqualifies us from the presence of God. He's holy and we're not. Your only hope is Jesus. When he died, he took the penalty for your unholy deeds. And if you trust him, his righteous life will count for you. If you trust Jesus, the river and the tree will be yours to enjoy. Revelations 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything. 
In Genesis chapter 3, the human race brought upon itself a curse because of disobedience. The ground was cursed. Do you ever wonder why your work is so hard? Because it's part of the curse. Won't it be fantastic to have jobs without toil? Relationships were cursed. Males sought to rule over their females. The suffering that women have in childbirth, something I'll be experiencing again very soon. That curse. Okay, but in the new city, there will no longer be any curse. God is saying he dwelt with our, he dealt with our disobedience. God has worked out the righteous cleansing in those who believe in Jesus Christ. This means that never again will the relationship between God and his people be interrupted. God is the best thing about this new earth and new heaven. Only God is worthy of our worship. And the most incredible part is this. Look at verse four of chapter 22. His servants will see his face. And we can read about how significant this is in Exodus 33. Moses, the greatest Jewish prophet, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. He's the one who confronted Pharaoh. He led the Israelites to freedom from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. And the day that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, while Moses and God were talking about how God's presence is what sets apart from his people, from all the other people on earth, Moses then boldly asks God to show him his glorious presence. Exodus 33, verses 19 to 23 say this, The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose. I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, uh, stand near me on this rock as my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of this rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and I'll let you see me from behind, but my face you will not see. Now this experience, it shows us that God's favor was on Moses, but because he was unholy and God is altogether holy, he wasn't allowed to see the face of God. In Matthew 5, 8, it says, only those whose hearts are pure will see God. Now, God's favor will be with his holy people in eternity. This moment to come, seeing God's face, this is what requires a new creation. See, something's actually going to happen to us that will make it possible for us to see the face of God and live. We'll be changed glorified. The old earth and heaven are made new because God will show his face. The new city is all about lovers embracing in a face-to-face -face dance of affection and creativity and dominion. Christ and his people will reign forever. Now the end of the visions of the book of Revelation, they conclude with these words in verse 5 and they will reign forever and ever. John is told to worship only God, and he's given a few instructions about what has been revealed to him. One com commentary summarized the next 12 verses by saying, these words are true, these words are to be kept, these words are to be read, these words are gospel, 
These words are final. And then verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. For those of you who are still just checking this Christianity thing out, that's your invitation to come. Come receive the free gift of eternal life. And to accept it, just say to God, I believe Jesus died for me and for my sin. So forgive me, God. Please come into my life. Or just say anything remotely similar. There's no magic words. You just pray to him. It's the authenticity of your heart that God is looking at. Now, for those who believe already, it's by the blood of Jesus that the eternal realities, the truths about this post-resurrection heaven, that brings us incredible hope and joy. We will eat, drink, work, play, worship, discover, invent, and travel in a sinless world. The Amazing Race is one of my favorite shows because I love seeing the participants travel the world and experience various cultures. And I'm hoping that my job in heaven requires me to travel. And I love that I'm not gonna have to worry about limited finances or getting COVID or needing to pack diarrhea medication. Living and knowing that the greatest adventure is yet to come, it completely changes the perspective you have on suffering in this life. A willingness to patiently endure, it gets, gets stirred up inside and it causes you to reevaluate what you treasure. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Randy Alcorn wrote, let's teach our children and our children what is absolutely true and profoundly attractive. What will last for eternity? Not your car, your house, degrees, trophies, or business. What will last for eternity is every service, every ministry, that you do for those in need. Every dollar given to feed the hungry, every cup of cold water given to the thirsty, every investment in missions, every prayer for the needy, every effort invested in evangelism, and every moment spent caring for a precious child, including rocking them to sleep or changing their diaper. The Bible, sa the Bible says that we'll reap in eternity what we've planted in this life. That's Galatians 6. Does the thought of experiencing a resurrected world appeal to you? Does it ignite your imagination to realize we will live happily ever after on a planet without sin and suffering? Is this part of the good news that you share with others? Kerry Newhoff said it well when he said, you should have a better plan for eternity than you do for your next vacation. How much time do you spend reflecting on the fact that your ultimate home will be a new earth where you will see God and serve him as a resurrected being in a resurrected human society where you're gonna overflow with joy and delight in drawing nearer to God. And if you do this daily, it's gonna change your life. The greatest treasure of heaven is the presence of God. If you found out that God 
and Jesus weren't actually going to be in heaven, but the street would still be paved with gold and the gates would still have pearl and there'd be living water and your dearly departed were going to be there. But if Jesus and his father and the Holy Spirit were not going to be there, would you still want to go? If you hesitated at all, you need to ask God to help you to know God as the best part of your life. This good book saves the best for last. John commands his audience to join with the Spirit and the church in calling the Lord Jesus to come. Does it ever look like to you that maybe he won't come? I'm sure the Israelites wondered the same thing as they studied the prophecies. They anticipated a king. Jesus then was unexpectedly born as a baby. The disciples, they likely thought his project had failed when he was placed in a tomb. But he triumphed. When Jesus comes again, his enemies are going to be surprised. But we must be ready. There should be nothing that we desire more than to see our Lord return. Verses 20 to 21, it says, He who is faithful witnesses to all these things, and he says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Be not, between now and his coming, that's exactly what we need, is grace. Let me pray this for us. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, oh, how we need your grace. Grace to keep us from becoming too attached to this world and what it values. Grace to endure the sufferings of this life. Grace to compel us to tell others about the future heaven and about the invitation for living water that you freely offered. Grace to be ready in anticipating Jesus' return. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.